Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show at LifeSiteNews.com. I've been following the culture wars extremely closely for about a decade now, and if there's one issue that seems to have come out of nowhere and entrenched itself in every single place in our culture, especially in the upper echelons of our culture, that would be the issue of transgenderism. I actually spent quite a bit of time speaking on this issue because it's one of the issues I find that people understand the least. It's fair to say that transgenderism has cropped up in the last decade and in the last five years, it has suddenly become mainstream. We've gone from not really understanding what transgenderism is to having transgenderism taught in elementary schools to children, having children taught that they might be in the wrong body, having sex changes declared a universal right. In the United Kingdom, we had a construction worker recently arrested for pointing and laughing at a biological male dressed as a female. A 74-year-old lady got a call from the cops for tweeting things that were considered uh, critical of transgender people. Another uh, man in the UK, a, a docker who said he never cared about these sorts of issues before, actually got a call from the police for tweeting a funny limerick about transgenderism. And so we're in this new cultural moment, what Ryan T. Anderson calls our transgender moment, that is very difficult to understand because it's predicated on this idea that gender is fluid, that men can be women, that women can be men, that men can get pregnant, that women can have penises. It's just an absolutely insane time to be living in, and in many ways, it's very difficult to figure out what exactly is going on. And so one of the people that I've wanted to talk to for some time, because I read his story for several years ago, is a man named Walt Hare, who is a former transgender person who has a passion to help others who regret their gender change. He himself transitioned from male to female uh, years ago and then realized during that heartbreaking process that transition wasn't actually the thing that he needed to heal. It wasn't actually what he needed for himself to truly work through who he was. And he tells that story uh, to us in the upcoming interview. I really want you to listen closely to Walt's story because we see statistics, we see these stories of transgender YouTube stars, we see the photographs of, of Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner, and we wonder where this is all going to stop and what this all can mean. And Walt Hayer has a lot of answers for that. And so without any further comment from myself, I present to you a conversation with Walt Hayer. Well, first of all, Walt, can you just share a bit of your story uh, with our listeners? Because it's it's kind of an incredible story, and it's a story with a lot of twists and turns. So maybe just before we start off with this conversation, kind of give us an idea of what your life has been like. Yeah, well, it's it started in 1944. So it was it started in an era where no one had words like transgender, gender dysphoria, um, and all of this stuff that we're faced with today so many years later. 74 years has passed since I um, first engaged in this. I'm 78 years old. So I come with um, a lot of history in dealing with this um, abhorrent idea that people can change genders or that they were born in the wrong body and uh, they need to undergo hormone therapy and change their name and gender, uh, which is all 
what I have discovered since I started in 1944 is actually child abuse needs to be identified as child abuse. And right. so when my grandmother, when my grandmother, um, out of my curiosity about her work, because she was a seamstress and made dresses for neighborhood ladies um, as a way for her to survive in her rickety old broken down wooden shack she lived in behind the junkyard um, and that curiosity uh, about that I would lean on her sewing machine and watch her make these dresses she took to making me a purple chiffon evening dress that became the symbol of my uh, downfall uh, downfall in uh, the proper identification of who I was and how I perceived who I was and eventually uh, costing me um, much of my life. Probably the first 45 years of my life were actually destroyed by this. And uh, now I live to try to help others and prevent them from undergoing totally unnecessary gender change or reassignment surgery, hormone or hormone blockers. So let's go back to the beginning. You say your your gender dysphoria really started when, because of your curiosity uh, with your grandmother's work, she began to permit you to cross-dress and help you in that. Is that correct? Right. Well, she made me a purple chiffon dress. So, you know, that curiosity got her to think that, well, you know, I'm sure she thought it was very benign and more fun, and she would just exercise my curiosity by uh, making me this full-length purple chiffon evening dress and then affirming me as to how cute I looked and how wonderful I was as a little little girl. What people don't realize is, and, and we just pass this off much too casually, is that the second you affirm somebody in a cross-gender identity, you're telling them there is something wrong with them the way they really are. Right. So, uh, we we start these two different tracks, and in the young mind of a four-year-old, um, this is very confusing. It's very troubling, and a four-year-old has absolutely no knowledge about consequences, uh, about the ability to fight back, uh, or to understand. All we do is comply. We're children are very very compliant. So if a adult uh, tells them that, oh, you look so cute, and you, sh- you know, this is wonderful, and da da da. You can pick your gender. Uh, it's child abuse. It's it's just the initial start of the destruction of young people, and we're seeing it uh, more and more every day. It's, it's quite disgusting to me, and uh, because I see this so frequently, and my life has been destroyed by it. So how did it proceed from there? This is, is quite a few years before puberty, of course. And so when did you begin to conceptualize yourself as a female and start to reject the fact that you were a male? The second I put on the purple dress, and, you know, it starts right there. There's where the dysphoria begins its little seed and you plant that little seed. And if it's not affirmed, it doesn't grow, but if you water it with affirmation, you can make it sprout and take root. And if you continue to allow the cross-dressing to go on and on and on as it did, then you're developing within that person uh, the 
gender dysphoria that causes them to question who they are and then began to think they were born in the wrong body or they have the wrong brain, which is all quite nonsense. Uh, that's never, ever been proven. The, the thing about uh, them saying that the brains are different is only found in cadavers of individuals who were on hormone therapy for many, many years. And, uh, you know, the hormone therapy itself changed the structure of their brain, not in vitro. So uh, we are actually manufacturing transgender kids with cross-gender hormones, hormone blockers, and so forth. So uh, these are not people who are born transgender. I wasn't born transgender. Nobody is born transgender. And so we are, we are in this absolute crazy world of building transgender children as if they were born that way, and they're not. So when did you begin, when did you decide you were going to transition, and how did you start to go about that process? Yeah, well, it wasn't until about eight years later in 1952, by this time, um, you know, I'm 12 years old, and the headlines uh, splashed across all the newspapers, Marine, Transgender, um, Christine Jorgensen. And, and then I began to say, and that was the only time that I ever heard the word or had some way to associate with what I was dealing with. So my first introduction to what I had dealt with for eight years was Christine Jorgensen, transgender who underwent surgery. So from that point on, I began to internalize those thoughts and feelings and began without any opposition to counteract it. Um, I was holding this in silently and that began to develop. And so um, many years later, um, I I had the opportunity to uh, get married, have children, Uh, I had a successful career as an associate design engineer on the Apollo space missions. I became um, a successful uh, management staff at American Honda Motor Company, uh, national operations manager for all the ports of entry. So I wasn't um, deranged to the point to where I couldn't function. I was just deeply troubled by this purple dress that grandma put me in and had always felt that I'd been born in the wrong body, but had been trying to fight it off by getting married, having children, being successful. But after 15 years of marriage, I went to one of these wonderful, brilliant gender specialists who specialized in transgenders. And um, he, the one that I went to, happened to write Uh, He was the author of the original Harry Benjamin International Standards of Care that have currently morphed into WPATH that is used today. So my therapist was the guy who uh, set the standards in motion. That was Dr. Paul Walker. And he said, oh, I told him my story. And he says, oh, you have gender identity disorder. It's eventually going to be called uh, gender dysphoria. But what you, the treatment for what you're going through is hormone therapy and surgery and, and coming out as a female. So um, I was puzzled by this, but I had remembered Christine Jorgensen. Uh, the only information I had was 
hormone surgery, hormone surgery, because that's all that was out there. And I divorced my wife and two years later underwent gender reassignment surgery in April 1983, became Laura Jensen, was terminated from my uh, wonderful job. Uh, within uh, a very short space of time, I was broke and homeless and living in a park in Long Beach, California. And then I began to literally crawl on my hands and knees uh, through the vomit that I had had all over me and in the grass and began to contact a friend who um, allowed me to stay in his garage. And um, I, from that point on, crawled my way back um, uh, to sanity. And so it was a long, it's a long journey. One of the things that I really want to ask you, I've, I've got two questions based on just what you've told me there. But one of the things that people find it very hard to understand, and this is something that we all we all need to understand because this is such a current cultural topic, is what it's like for somebody genuinely struggling with gender dysphoria. So what was that like for you? Uh, what was that experience like struggling with this? Because in order for us to truly approach this issue properly, we do have to understand uh, the feelings and the emotions that people are going through as they struggle with this. Okay, well, I, I think the most important thing for us to understand is, number one, look at the person and say they weren't born that way and that someone abused them. They, they, they were abused in some way. Some deep hurt uh, was caused them by someone else. And uh, in my case, the purple dress was child abuse. Being affirmed was child abuse. When my dad and mom uh, learned of the secret that my grandmother and I had two and a half years after it took root, was that my dad, who was a, a judo expert and auxiliary policeman and a very strong, very actually kind guy, kind of was really caught off guard by what grandma was doing to his boy. And he began to employ uh, heavy discipline on me as a way to sort of drive the demon of the purple dress out of me. I, I, I mean, I can understand why he was doing that. He Again, we're in early, mid-40s, 1940s, with little or no knowledge of what to do. It's scary. And so he did what he could, but his brother... Uh, adopted brother um, decided that because I was wearing a purple dress that he could uh, that I was fodder for sexual abuse so he began to sexually molest and abuse me in in ways for uh, some time so the purple dress caused the child abuse that caused my father to use physical abuse that caused my uncle to employ sexual abuse before I was ever nine years old. So uh, what we need to do is understand that, uh, and I have found this in 100% of the hundreds of people that I've worked with and talked to, that they were somehow abused as children. I would say half of them sexually abused. Another group of them were physically abused. Some of them emotionally abused. And some of them just treated badly or had serious losses within their own family, such as the death of a mother or father or alcoholism or drug addiction 
um, there's or pornography. There's so many different things that uh, play into a person not wanting to be who they are. That's that's what you're looking at. You're looking at individuals who want to escape the pain that was caused them, the abuse that was caused them, and and to not identify with that by identifying as a different person who never was abused. And so you experiencing this in your brain, when you started to realize uh, that this gender dysphoria was, in your mind, going to lead to, to gender transition, how did you tell people? How did you explain this to them? Uh, in today's day and age, there's a sort of a, a lingo out there. It's popular, right? You've got the YouTube stars. You have the Hollywood films. You have the political progressives. You name it. Uh, it's It's a very understandable thing. But in your time... This was a very different situation than the one that we're facing now. Yeah, well, I didn't tell anyone because there was no way to explain it. Um, I, You know, this is 1983. Um, I'd, I'd been diagnosed in 1981. Um, there were very few people at that time. There was no YouTube. There was no Google. Uh, and so I was dealing with it the best I could uh, through the divorce and um and of course um so i was struggling but what what began to turn the tide was i had become convinced that i would uh, become a good counselor and began to study at uc santa cruz uh the psychology of addictions uh whether it be a drug or alcohol or psychological or emotional addictions and i came across studies that showed that people who identified in the different gender actually were suffering from uh, quite a group of different psychological and emotional disorders that most often are never treated. Uh, as an example, body dysmorphia, uh, dissociative disorders, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, separation anxiety, and many other disorders that uh, no one will talk about uh, today because uh, it's not politically correct. In fact, every time I open my mouth, I'm not politically correct. I, I don't even know what political correctness is. I couldn't live in that space. So, uh, and, and then we have other disorders that many transgender people, probably some people have speculated as uh, Bruce Jenner, uh, is that that's autogynephilia which is a uh, sexual fetish disorder that some reports, studies show that uh, 30% of the transgender population uh, represent. Uh, and autogynephilia is a condition where uh, they dress up, and it's only reserved for men, they dress up in uh, women's clothing, look at themselves in the mirror, and become sexually aroused by what they see in the mirror, and they become the object of their own sexual affection. Right. So that is one that we don't hear about very often in the media. How would you say, when you when you first approached this idea of transition, um, what was it like to make that decision? Because it's going to be so hard for most listeners that are hearing this to truly understand how somebody gets to the point where they're going to make a decision uh, to physically alter their bodies. But it's something we need to understand because so many people are doing it and so many now 
even children are requesting it. Yeah. Well, I think the important thing for in my particular case, remember at, at that time, there was absolutely no opposition. There was no uh, other resources for me to go to. I only heard one track. There was no uh, voice saying, no, 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 don't do this. Um, I there, Again, you didn't have the Internet to look to. Uh, if there were voices out there, they, they weren't heard. I couldn't access them. Um, and uh, one therapist that I went to uh, was so perplexed by what I was doing because it was so early and new. He said, well, I guess what we need to do is curse Walt and bless Laura, which was my my new identity. Well, um, a good uh, if I were that therapist today, I would say what we need to do is examine what has caused you to not like who you are to the point to where you want to dismantle your body. And um, and, and as I have done with many people, I've found that they themselves, uh, after working with them for a period of time, can 100% of the time identify what has caused them to not want to be who they are. And um, when they identify that and can verbal, verbalize it to me, they began to understand that they don't need hormones. They don't need to transition. Or if they have, they they already done so, they realize they don't need to live that way, and they begin the process of detransitioning, just like I did in the last four or five weeks with a pharmacist and a school teacher who I wrote about in New Jersey. So um, it's identifying what caused them to not like who they are and want to become someone who they can actually never become. It's a false identity. It's a masquerade. It's quite impossible to change biologically uh, from one gender to the other. So that is that's where the, the where I call this the greatest fraud, medical fraud in history, uh, trying to change somebody from one gender to the other, and then giving them a birth certificate that says they have when in fact they haven't. So how did you go about trying to live this this false identity? Did people know that you had that you had transitioned into female or had attempted to do so? How did you uh, practically go from living as a man to attempting to live as a woman? Uh, if if people knew, they they didn't tell me. Um, I ended up with a, a good job at uh, FDIC, uh, working in San Francisco. Um, in in the FDIC tower, uh, and I had a good job there. Um, I also worked at the Postal Service, um, so I was living at 17th and Judah in San Francisco, had, uh, you know, regular income. Um, But my studies in psychology caused me to pull back from that and begin to work toward uh, understanding my own dilemma and how the sexual abuse, physical abuse, and the cross-dressing abuse played a part in actually developing my dysphoria. And once I began to engage in effective psychotherapy from someone other than a uh, LGBT cheerleading therapist, I was able to heal from that. Uh, it, that's not reparative therapy. It's just really good therapy that everyone needs. And uh, I call it restorative therapy and got my life back. So when did you realize after transition that the thing that you had given up so much of your previous life for 
wasn't actually going to make you happy after all? Uh, probably six years into um, uh, living out this uh, transgender identity. And what we, what we have found uh, in, in the last 10 years that I've been working with people is that um, somewhere between uh, six and 20 years, people end up uh, finding regret. Uh, I've had some as far out as 30 years regretting their transition, but explaining that they it took many years for them to admit that they regretted it because the, the losses were so devastating. So, um, y you know, many of the people have regret. If you look at the uh, UK Guardian study of 2004, they say 20% of the people have regret. And then if you include in that regret number the 40% who attempt suicide, I would submit to anyone with um, a little bit of reasoning power that um, people who are attempting suicide are also people who regret doing the transition. And so we have this population of 40% attempting to take their life due to regret, unhappiness, or dissatisfaction with their change of gender, and 20% clearly having regret about doing it. And so that's a pretty high number, uh, given um, the fact that they keep saying that very few people have regret. Um, I, I don't know of any other surgical procedure where uh, they advocate continuing a surgical procedure where 40% of the people will attempt suicide and 20% of them have regret, but they continue to do so with reassignment surgery when it is totally ineffective in helping people improve the quality of their life. So what was it like for you when you realized that this, the surgery, the transition had not worked and that you needed to try something else? Yeah, well, that kind of pain, um, you, you have no idea you, I can't even express to you what that pain was like. I, there were many times where I had, I was doubled over with my hands on top of my knees, bent over, just weeping. Is such gut-wrenching pain at having felt like I'd been tricked and duped, lied to, and carved up like a piece of sushi and thrown on the scrap heap pile of human humanity. So, uh, you know, transgender people are discarded as, uh, in my view, as uh, an experiment uh, that has failed. And uh, it's, uh, we see this so often, as I mentioned, you know, you, you don't have 40% of the population attempting suicide if it's successful, and you don't have 20% of them reporting regret if it's successful. We, we've got to get our heads out of the sand here. This is a horrible thing. The first time that it was reported as a failure, a, a, a total failure, was in 1979 by Dr. Charles L. Illenfeld, who worked at the largest gender change clinic in the country at that time. Run, it was uh, the Harry Benjamin Gender Clinic in New York. Uh, Dr. Illenfeld was a homosexual transgender activist and endocrinologist who had administered hormone therapy for a six-year period of time to over 500 transgender people. And he said in 1979 to a group of clinicians, 
there is too much unhappiness and too many suicides among the people who have changed their genders. And I'm leaving the practice as of an endocrinologist and becoming a psychiatric doctor so I can help these poor people who have much deeper psychological issues so that I can actually help them. So you realized that the transition hadn't helped. You started to look into what had caused your dysphoria in the first place. How did you, what was your next step? How did you go about attempting to reverse the transition, to go back to living as a male, uh, to just telling the people in your life at this point, as you said, you'd been living as a woman for six years, Many of the people that, that now knew you only knew you as Laura, didn't know you as Walt. So what was this process of what's now called detransition like, both socially as well as, as psychologically and physically? Well, you, what you do is you limit the number of people you're exposed to during this period of time so that you don't have uh, a big heavy weight of trying to explain it to everybody. So you, in my case, I closed down the number of people I worked with and I was in oftentimes in therapy every single day, and I limited my uh, closest friends to what I was going through, people I could trust, and um, I had what I called my own little safe houses, one in Los Angeles and one in the Bay Area uh, that I knew I could go to and, and stay at. eventually got uh, another little safe house up in um the gold country of California, a little one-room place. And so I had these little uh, places where I would go and uh, sort of retreat from life and begin to work through these issues. And it took a couple of years. Um, it, it doesn't come easy. And so uh, I eventually was put on um, a disability um, and because I was, I had no money, I had no means of income and, uh, a therapist put me uh, put me through the system in California so that I could go on disability. So at least I would have housing and food. Uh, as soon as I recovered enough, I got off a of disability. I didn't want to be uh, in that position and began to crawl my way back um, uh, through the system and um, get out of the system actually, and and then begin to restore my life through a church. Uh, in um, the Bay Area, and um, I began uh, realizing that uh, this is just uh, nonsense. It's a temporary uh, path of destruction, and if you stay in it, it will be a lifelong path of destruction. So where was your family through this whole process of detransition? Uh, they didn't speak to me. Um, and, uh, you know, I had limited contact with my mother, who was disgusted with me. My brother, to this very day, uh, doesn't speak to me. He, uh, he wants nothing to do with me, even though my life is restored and redeemed. And I'm married now for over 21 years to my new wife and um, quite healthy and sober for over 32 years, 33 years. And so um, I'm still unacceptable uh, to uh, my brother. My children, however, I have a good relationship with them. Um, and they, my daughter has called me her hero for being able to overcome this. So um, yeah, everybody has a, um, 
a different take on it. My high school friends love the heck out of me, and, and they know my whole story, and they also think uh, what I've done is heroic. And um, I don't think it's heroic. I just think um, it was necessary for me to do um, to have a psychologically and emotionally healthy life is to not live in the absolute total nonsense of a transgender identity, which is, to me is totally abhorrent. So physically speaking, how did you detransition from, uh, as, as they put it now, uh, appearing or posing as female uh, to going back to living as Walt? Yeah, well, when you when you realize that the surgery and the hormones really never changed your gender, that's step one. They didn't change you. You know, all they did was mutilate you. They carved you up and uh, messed with you uh, inappropriately. More abuse, by the way. Uh, this is just the surgical abuse uh, left from the abuse that started with the purple dress and physical abuse. The sexual abuse ended up becoming surgical abuse. So trying to recover from these series of abuses, you realize that some things cannot be restored. and um, you just have to um, adjust psychologically and emotionally to these losses and move forward without them uh, bringing you down and causing you to commit suicide, um, and which is many of the reasons why people um, take their life is because um, they've been so badly mutilated that they can't be fully restored and they see no way out except to take their life. So when would you say you managed to fully transition from living as Laura back to, to living as Walt and, and starting to put your life back together and live as a man publicly? Yeah, I, I wrote it down. It's April of 1990. Okay. April of 1990. What happened next? Just to get this the chronology and, and your story uh, really out there and really clear. Yeah, well, then at that point, I... I was the, the pastor of the church I was going to ask me to uh, do the sermons at, at church um, on the story of Zacchaeus um, and tell my story and how it woven into how uh, Christ wanted to, uh, Jesus wanted to come and speak with Zacchaeus and spend time with people that other people don't like. And uh, so uh, that Sunday, uh, October 89, was just prior to my um, 1990 complete acknowledgement I was redeemed and restored, um, that um, I was able to begin to work through all these things and, and share my story. And I've been sharing it um, ever since. So here we are, 1989 to... Nine, uh, where, where are we now? 2019. I'm still sharing it with you today. So it's quite a few years. And so uh, you, you've been remarried since then. Uh, explain how you, you put yeah. your life back together after all of this, because that's something I think that a lot of people need to hear as well. And we'll get into this more in a minute. But uh, we both know and anybody who's been following this issue knows that the the phenomenon of detransitioners is not only growing, but it's increasingly hard to ignore. And so for those people, and just for people who wonder what the path for uh, formerly transgender people is, how did you put your life back together, and you've now been happily married for more than two decades, 
Uh, how did you how did you manage to do that? <laughs> you know, first you start by accepting uh, the losses. You accept the abuse. You accept the pain, and you put it behind you, and you go, okay, uh, it's now time to put my life back together and move forward. And um, I did that just by uh, expanding my uh, relationships instead of um, closing them down like I had in the past and uh, began to make new relationships and eventually started speaking at um, recovery meetings. And um, my current wife heard me speak uh, at a recovery meeting and told her friend that, um, wow, that's the kind of guy I want. He's already been through everything and he's got all the stuff out of the way and he's ready to move forward. So right. uh, after about five years of having um, a friend relationship, um, we decided to get married um, in 1997. So uh, from the time that I was restored or felt totally restored in 1990, it was seven years uh, later that I was uh, remarried and began to um, build my life back. And we built our own small mini storage business and uh, in the gold country of uh, California, and we've been we've sold that off and have been doing uh, ministry work um, for the last ten years. So, what was it like for you? Uh, again, speaking chronologically, because most of us who have been following this transgender phenomenon uh, only saw it really explode over the past five years. Most people that I know never heard the word transgender until in the last three years. And it seems to have moved at an absolutely lightning speed. So for somebody like yourself, who, who, who went through all of this, to see uh, in the last decade the very thing that, that, as you say, destroyed much of your life, suddenly sweeping right across Western civilization, what was that like for you? Well, you know, once Obama came into office and then put in a safe school czar who was a homosexual activist, uh, in his administration, who who himself openly admitted he thought it was perfectly okay for adult men to have intercourse with young boys, and then appoint at the same time 250, I believe it was, LGBT activists uh, to different segments of his administration, I knew we were in trouble. And so uh, this was the beginning of the explosion, and then uh, Valerie Jarrett at the White House began to have LGBT meetings in the White House. Uh, she is an LGBT activist. And then they appointed a transgender to the White House staff under Obama uh, to begin. This is what really began the explosion. So I find this so disgusting and so disturbing. Uh, I am still to this day shocked by the fact that no one is able to look at the history and see how how many lives are being destroyed every day, how families are being destroyed every day, how churches have come under fire. Uh, the very foundation of this country rests on a man and a woman becoming married and bearing children. And uh, today, the eradication of male and female through the use of transgender identities threatens not only the church, but the very foundation of this country, and and it's growing worse. And we need some really strong power to overcome.
overcome what's going on or we're we're going to see more things that um, where lives are totally destroyed, more people using drugs and alcohol and methamphetamines to try to deal with the hurt and pain that has been caused by, frankly, the LGBT uh, because of their agenda. They don't really care about young children or the psychological or emotional health of young children. They only care about growing the number of transgender, homosexual, lesbian, and queer individuals. So one of the things that most people want to know is, is you've explained politically how this took off, but how have so many people accepted this? It, it seems bizarre, the social phenomenon that seems to have happened because it's happened so quickly and it's so counterintuitive, this idea that our society has existed for thousands of years and that tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of boys and girls were born into the wrong body, uh, but we didn't discover this until the last decade or so, seems so absurd that it's very difficult to explain how this idea has taken root so effectively. Well, it's affirmation and, and support. Uh, right now, if you're a transgender, you can become, uh, you can get on the front cover of a magazine. You can get a show uh, like, um, uh, you know, there's a young child that's on a show and make money. Um, right. I've had uh, people who do podcasts that are transgenders that are being paid by uh, the left side of the aisle uh, great sums of money. The LGBT pays their activists sometimes $60,000, $70,000 a year. Um, so we have the affirmation side, uh, which is supported by oodles and gobs of money, starting with Soros and Steyer and many other people uh, who are funding this, uh, as well as HRC. Uh, and so we have all these groups pumping money into it. It's very attractive. I've had people actually say, I, don't, I, I regret what I'm doing, but I don't want to detransition because I see the abuse that you're getting from the LGBT, Walt, and I don't want to, you know, uh, hit the headlines like you do and be in the crosshairs of the LGBT. Well, I'm 78 years old. I, I frankly don't really give a rip. I'm really getting sick and tired of the LGBT garnering so much power that they're willing to destroy the lives of young children and rip uh, families, good families, apart. I just spoke with a woman last night whose husband thinks he's a transgender and left his wife and two children in Sacramento. Uh, this is the stuff that um, it just amazes me. Uh, you know, it's the affirmation, I believe, that's still getting played out. They get, they get the, you know, I watched a TV show where they were showing last night transgender stuff. We're, we're being inundated with the propaganda of transgender stuff. If we ever got TV shows to illustrate and depict the horror, the lives that are destroyed, and the detransitions, uh, we would see a changing tide. Even a guy in the UK who wanted, who was a PhD psychologist who wanted to report uh, the detransitions the and regret that he was finding in his own practice, they shut him down. They wouldn't allow him to do that. So as long as they can stifle the old man's voice like you're hearing today or the other voices, um, they're going to continue to win because they hold the upper hand. And until such time as our leaders begin to understand that they're killing young children 
they're destroying the families and lives of people. Um, we're just going to see more of it. So you've been talking about your story since the early 90s, but when did you find yourself in the crosshairs of the LGBT movement? When did they decide to, as you put it, uh, target you? Uh, probably about four years ago, um, and uh, when I started speaking about Jenner and um, and calling him Bruce because he's not a female, and uh, I'm sorry, going through the transition surgery no matter how much hormones you take, no matter how much surgery you have, Jenner can't become a woman. I mean, he can say he's a woman, but he's not. Uh, if he wants to um, fabricate the idea that he is, that's fine with me, but um, he's not a woman. He can't be. Um, so uh, these are the things, you know, we're left with uh, pronouns and all of these politically correct dialogue. Uh, that we're supposed to use as a way to advance this agenda, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. Uh, it's nonsense, uh, and it's destroying um, too many people's lives. I work with people who write me, quite frankly, sometimes every day, certainly every week, who want help to detransition. Uh, families, mothers and dads who write me about their kids saying, oh, I'm a transgender now. Well, they're finding out how to become transgender on the Internet. They've got chat rooms. 14, 15-year-old kids joining together to change genders. They're not, they're not gender dysphoric. They're not even transgenders. It's just a fad. This is like, you know, the goth period that we saw many years ago where all the kids were wearing black. Kids are very impressionable. They like to join together and uh, do group things. And so we have the transgender group think. Uh, and too many of them now are engaging in cross-gender hormone stuff. And um, the schools are ruining our kids. Parents ask me, you know, my kids learning this at school. I said, take them out of school. Public schools are an absolute disaster. And they are absolutely no place for a healthy uh, kid to go. Uh, we need to begin training our kids at home in what life is about because our public schools are just a, a wash in absolute LGBT propaganda. So I get emails and letters uh, from parents as well sometimes because I write about this issue pretty frequently. And one of the letters I got recently from a, from a mother just said, it really stuck with me. She has quite a few kids, um, and one of her kids is transitioning. A bunch of her kids won't speak to her anymore for opposing it. And what she said was, if, if I had known the world was going to turn out this way, I don't think I would have had kids. Um, yeah. The the phenomenon of detransitioning is is not spoken about much. Uh, as I'm sure you know, Jesse Singal mentioned it in the Atlantic, and he got crucified by the LGBT activists just for you know interviewing people about their actual lived experiences. But you get a lot yeah. of people messaging you just so that our audience can really understand that detransitioning people who have gone through sex changes or lived as a trans person and want to transition back, want to leave that all behind. Share some of the stories that you've heard personally and recently with us. Yeah, well, and, and uh, you know, that's why I wrote the book Trans Life Survivors, a plug for the book, because it's got 30 of the stories of the some hundreds that I could have put in there. Um, you know, people from all walks of life, all different uh, family issues um, are in that. One of the guys uh, had written and talked to me um, before I published uh, his story in the book. His name is Billy. 
And Billy says, you know, I don't know why I became a transgender. And I said, well, let's talk about it, Billy. Let's try to explore what that's all about. And uh, I said, tell me about your life. He had a typical um, nice family. Uh, and he said when he was 11 years old, he was off at um, swimming camp during the summer. And his diving coach began to sexually abuse him um, during this time he was at camp. And, and we began to explore that, and he realized that he wanted to rid himself of his genitalia because, in his mind, if his genitalia were gone, then people like the diving coach would never sexually abuse him again. And so the only alternative to removing genitalia was to become a female transgender. So you can see how the mind works to avoid being sexually abused is to identify with a transgender and then you're not going to be sexually abused. On the other side, I've had women who've written and talked to me saying that they became men as a way to show power uh, to men that otherwise might abuse them because their girls wouldn't abuse them because they're now identifying as a boy. So in both cases, in both scenarios, they were trying to protect themselves from being sexually abused. So we, we have so many different things. I, I've had uh, people who witnessed their uh, parent die uh, because of illness, and, and it, was so, it was such a huge loss to them um, that they just couldn't handle it, and, and they decided to transition. I've had other people report to me that their dad was such um, a total idiot jerk repugnant that they never wanted to become a man that uh, if that's what men are like i'm going to become a woman because my mom is good and my dad is not and so that fostered the idea of becoming a transgender so there there are so many things there's probably two or three hundred different reasons for people adopting a cross-gender identity none of them are quite healthy but they do them anyway and, and the troubling part is none of them actually really change. It's fantasy, it's fiction, it's a masquerade, but it works for them to uh, very childlike. This is the kind of thing that a young child does, uh, pretends to be someone else uh, when they're very young. So these are very transgenderism, very childlike behavior done by adults. So those you are speaking to that that want to transition, are there quite a few people in your experience that are actually attempting to go back uh, to the previous gender? And what's that journey like for them? We hear a lot about um, sex change surgery, which was then um, a sex reassignment surgery, and now they're calling it uh, you know sex confirmation or gender confirmation surgery. Of course, to to convince us all that this is this is something that's necessary. But we know that a lot of the damage that's done by these surgeries is permanent. And so how are people going about uh, detransitioning after going through all of this? Well, there's a choice. You, you either adopt to go to what they call a phalloplasty, which is the procedure they use to transition females to males. And you can have a phalloplasty done. Um, and uh, it is never going to function like the original um, equipment that God made. Um, and they do that uh, for different reasons. Everybody has a different reason for wanting a phalloplasty. Or you accept the fact that the doctors mutilated you 
and and ruined um, much of your body. Um, and so uh, you have those two choices. Uh, either way, you can detransition without having a phalloplasty, um, and you can detransition with a phalloplasty. And I've I've actually sat across the table from people at a coffee shop, and they say, I want to detransition. And I said, well, you can just go across the street to the store over there and buy some men's clothes, and you will have completed your detransition. Right. And when they're going through this process, because a lot of them email you your stories, and one of the things that I really want to impress on listeners is that this mass social phenomenon with so many people deciding to transition uh, right now, uh, we've got... What was one of the last therapists out of Chicago said? They, they they were actually talking about how to identify transgenderism in pre-verbal children, children who can't talk yet. I've had another one of my friends yeah. say that, you know, in 10, 15 years from now, the malpractice lawsuits that are going to be leveled at the doctors and the parents who facilitated and permitted these things are going to be crazy. And so what are the people who oh, detransition yeah. saying now about about the fact that they were told this was a good idea and about the fact that their experience is still ignored and marginalized and actually shouted down by the very activists who claim to speak for them? Yeah. Well, they, they keep them quiet so that they can't emerge. Um, although I've got somebody I'm working with right now that I've been in contact with that is going to, I can't mention his name yet, but is going to emerge that quite frankly is going to shock the country. And, um, uh, and this will be, I think, somebody that um, people can latch on to and use as the, uh, the Trojan horse to tear down the fence and begin to have some impact. It's a very uh, powerful story and a, a good person to lead the charge. And we need somebody like that that we can get behind to push this. And so people are silenced to the point to where I have documentary film people all the time say, can you get some of the people that you've worked with to come on film? And they go, no, they don't want to. They're, they, can't, they don't want their neighbors to know that they've detransitioned. They don't want their families, in some cases, to talk about them to other people. They, they are more oppressed and uh, abused and discriminated against than any other population there is today, the detransitioners are. And so uh, they live in fear. Um, and thanks to my um, sunset years uh, and what my wife refers to as an I don't give a rip attitude, I, I just speak up. The million-dollar question that none of us can know for sure but that everybody wants the answer to is, is where does this all end? And if anybody has any experience and, and if anybody has talked to the most number of people about this issue, when you look at this cultural experiment uh, through the lens of not only what you've experienced but all the stories that you're privy to, how do you see this cultural experiment ending? Well, I think what's going to happen is you're going to see someone – of great stature, um, step forward and say, I did this and it was a big mistake. And then somebody following that and saying it was a big mistake. And then you see the dominoes begin to fall as more and more people uh, come out. And, and they'll, you know, I have talked to Dr. Paul McHugh many times and we've both said, you know, we're going to be laying at the foot of the wall when it goes down 
on this whole transgender madness, but they're going to look at us and say, yes, there they lay, and they were both right in speaking out about this nonsense. We just learned all too late, and too many lives have been lost through suicide and uh, carved up by these sushi chefs who I think are obsessed with carving up genitalia, and it tells you something about their own psyche. Uh, you know, the one doctor in California making $1.3 million a year off of doing this is not uh, real soon going to try to discourage anybody from um, having the surgery when they're making such great money out of it. I get absolutely zero out of doing what I do. I do it because I really, truly want to save families, save children, and save lives from unnecessary surgical procedures and hormone therapies. It's just, it's terrible. A lot of people listening, uh, I, I just recently gave a, a series of lectures on, on this very issue. And the number one question I get from parents and audience members is, what do we need to know and, and what can we do about this? And so I'll pose that question yeah. to you because nobody's more qualified than you to answer it. What can people do about this? Well, when a child comes to you, um, as an example, and says, you know, I think I'm a transgender, will you sit down and say, okay, little Johnny, tell me, where did you get this idea? Where did it come from? How did you learn that transgenders exist? And begin that dialogue. Now, if they're uh, an honest and true uh, non-rainbow flag-waving parent, um who hasn't already indoctrinated them into the lifestyle and, and taken many of the parents are taking their kids to gay pride parades and showing, showing them young transgender books. Uh, then we know what's happening because they're being indoctrinated by a, a transgender LGBT or something parent. If they're not one of those people, uh, they're on what I call the healthy side. Um, then what we need to do is find out where did you learn this? Did you learn it at school? Did you learn it from a next door neighbor? Did you learn it from Uncle Fred? Um, and so once you begin to find out where they learned this behavior, because it's a behavior, um, then you begin to tell them, well, little Johnny, uh, you can't ever change. Uh, I'm sorry, Uncle Fred is not a healthy person and he shouldn't be doing this. And Little boys can't change to little girls. Little girls can't change to little boys. And if it's an adult uh, who thinks he's a transgender, uh, many times, especially if they're married, uh, you can pretty well ask him a very simple question. Uh, if it's an adult, do you uh, masturbate or get sexually aroused when you cross-dress? If the answer is yes, they're not transgender. They're an autogynephiliac. Final question. Where can our listeners find your work? Because you're one of the experts in this field. I know you've written a number of books. I know you write columns very regularly. Where can our listeners find the work that you've done on this issue? Yeah. WaltHire.com. That's W-A-L-T-H-E-Y-E-R.com or SexChangeRegret.com. Walt, thank you so much for taking the time to share your experience with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a conversation between myself and Walt Heyer, a former transgender person who is now one of America's most prominent activists 
pushing back against the transgender delusion and doing everything he can to walk with people who have been victimized by this ideology. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can find us at lifesightnews.com and across a variety of platforms, and we hope you'll join us again next week.